Are you confused? Radio waves. Radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. Today is Thursday, the 20th of October 2016. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and the title of this week's episode is The Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex with Education and Public Outreach Manager Glenn Nagel. Each session will have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda. But Dr. Sherbikov is still out at the Dacha, apparently, and there's no internet, but hopefully we'll have the good doctor back next week. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. It gives me great pleasure today to speak with Glenn Nagel. Glenn is at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex, the CDSCC. Now, Glenn, where did you grow up, Glenn? And tell us a bit about how you became interested in science and space. I was born in 1961 in Sutherland, up in New South Wales, near Sydney. Uh, so I'm a shyer boy <laughs> from that area. And I, I grew up at a time when humans were first going into space. So John Glenn was flying into space, Gagarin was going into space, you know, astronauts were starting to go up there as part of the, the Mercury, the Gemini programs, and then of course eventually Apollo. And I think pretty much every kid at that time wanted to be one of three things, a fireman, a policeman, or an astronaut. Yep. <laughs> probably throw in rocket scientists for good measure somewhere in there, fourth choice. Very good. And I just grew up at a time and a place where I just couldn't get to do that. You know, I was, I was living in Australia. I was in the Sutherland Shire. I was a billion miles, might have well been a billion miles from everything. So I stayed interested in science for a long, long time, probably until about the age of, you know, I watched the moon landings, everything else. And, and around about the age of 11, 12, probably like my, most boys at that time, we, we discovered girls. And then by 15, I went back to science because it was easier to understand. <laughs> Very good. And then you went on and did some further study? I think I did pretty well at school. I was always good academically. I won a couple of little science prizes in primary school. I had a very good school principal at the school I went to who encouraged me to continue my own interests and, you know, moved on to high school Still did okay there, was blessed by having a really good maths teacher and also a good science teacher at that school and was just able to continue my own interests. But again, I was kind of like, well, where would I go? What could I do in Australia that I could do in that space science area? And again, the opportunities weren't there. So by the time I left high school, I decided that, well... I wanted to be able to tell more people about things that I was interested in. So I kind of started going into science communication as my own level of interest, talking to other people, doing public talks, joining a couple of different space clubs that were around Sydney at the time. And that has become my passion now, helping to encourage a, a new generation of people to be interested in and showing them the opportunities that are available to them now that were never available to me as a kid in school. 
Fantastic, Glenn. And now you're working for the CSIRO as the Education and Public Outreach Manager at the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex. And before we talk about the history and capabilities of the CDSCC, could you tell us about the role of that facility in the ESA's Rosetta Philae mission to Comet cheryumov gerasimenko so our tracking station is, of course, part of NASA's Deep Space Network. We're one of only three stations in the world that has this key task, and that's to provide communications to many dozens of spacecraft robotic missions that are out across the solar system. So for us, our Deep Space missions are anything the moon and beyond. So our role is to send commands to spacecraft to tell yep. them where to go, what to do, and to get that data back. And for the Rosetta and Philae mission, a mission of the European Space Agency, we've been supporting it since the day it launched. We were one of the first stations in the world to have contact with it as the vehicle left its launch site in French Guiana, headed off on this 10-year journey to get all the way to Comet 67P, Cherimov, Gerasimenko. And was there tracking it right throughout its arrival, through its journey with the comet and the spacecraft journeying around the sun, the landing of the fillet lander on the surface, the, the multiple bounce landing on, yep. on the surface. And then, of course, as the comet rounded the sun, coming back out again. And... And now, of course, just recently on Friday, the 30th of September, providing communications in the last few hours of the spacecraft's life as it headed down towards the surface of the comet to join Philae on what will be kind of an ongoing quiet mission to live with this comet for the next few billion years as it travels around the solar system. Very good. And it will be coming around again in another six years? Yeah, six years from now, this is a regular comet rounding our solar system, rounding our sun, going back out again. Will it be, you know, when, if ever, will we have another mission going out to visit it? I'd like to think one day somebody might go and at least fly by and snap a photo. <laughs> Not just Philae, but Rosetta on the surface of the comet. I think that would be a wonderful thing to witness. That would be wonderful. Now, let's go back a bit. Can you tell us about the development, the management, and other missions that the CDSCC has been involved with? I know you've had some involvement way back with Voyager, with the recent Indian mission to Mars, with Juno's glorious mission, and New Horizons to Pluto. Our role, of course, as I said before, is to communicate with all the spacecraft out there. That includes missions not only of NASA, but also for the Russians, for India, for Japan, for all the European Space Agency nations. And we have agreements right now signed up with, all, with countries like China, with the United Arab Emirates and others, and even commercial operations like SpaceX, yep. if they're going to send missions off into deep space in the future. So at the present time, we are handling just over 35 individual missions, which actually represent 40 spacecraft. So some missions are multiple spacecraft missions, like the Cluster or the MMS missions, which study the Sun or the Earth's magnetic field and their interaction with the Sun. And so... 40 spacecraft so, that are out there right now. We have six spacecraft just studying the sun. Uh, yep. We have a mission that's only recently finished up at the planet Mercury, the Messenger spacecraft, globally mapping that world. At the present time, we have a mission called Akatsuki, a Japanese mission in orbit around Venus. There are four spacecraft that we support at the moon right now, uh, studying our nearest neighbour in space. Uh, Mars, seven spacecraft there currently. It's the traffic jam of the solar system. Yep. Uh, so five missions in orbit, two robot rovers on its surface, 
And on the 19th of October, of course, the European Space Agency's ExoMars mission will also hopefully enter orbit and drop the Schiaparelli lander onto the surface of Mars, testing the Europeans' landing system for a future rover planned to go in 2018. We have a mission in the asteroid belt right now, the Dawn mission, orbiting around the dwarf planet Ceres. The Juno mission, of course, as you mentioned, in orbit around Jupiter. And we have the Cassini mission out at Saturn. It's been there for, well, over 13 years now with about a year to go in its incredible mission at that ringed world. The New Horizons spacecraft, which made its historic flyby of Pluto last year. Of course, we're still tracking that spacecraft. It's over a billion kilometres past Pluto now, heading out to another destination out in the Kuiper Belt, an asteroid known as 2014 MU69, and it will actually fly by there on the 1st of January 2019. So New Year's Day 2019, we're going to be out at the tracking station ensuring that uh, spacecraft has another successful flyby. And of course, as you mentioned, we are still tracking the twin Voyager spacecraft. Yes. Uh, they are an amazing pair of spacecraft. Launched into space in August and September of 1977. I always delight in telling uh, kids that's a couple of months after the premiere of the very first Star Wars movie. <laughs> Uh, and what are still the best Star Wars movies. Yep. <laughs> Those uh, two spacecraft, of course, made the grand tour of the solar system. Voyager 1 going to Jupiter and Saturn. Voyager 2 going to Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, the only spacecraft to visit those two outer worlds. And, of course, they've continued on. Each of these spacecraft still travelling at about 16.5 kilometres per second. So they're covering about 1.4 million kilometres a day. Voyager 1 now is the most distant spacecraft from the Earth. Yes. Over 20.4 billion kilometers from home and we're still talking to these two spacecraft every day and they're still telling us unique things about a region of space well beyond the planets that nobody ever thought we'd be exploring this soon and voyager one now in interstellar space heading off to the nearest stars Wow, that's awesome, Glenn. So your facility at the CDSCC must be particularly sensitive and must be very powerful to pick up and to transmit. And giant antennas at the tracking stations. We have four 34-metre-wide antenna dishes. We have also our big 70-metre dish, Deep Space Station 43, which is the largest antenna dish here in the Southern Hemisphere. It's still one of the largest durable antennas in the world. And to give you some idea of the sensitivity of the dishes, if we take Voyager as our example, Voyager 1 transmits 14 to 19 watts of power. Yep. So... Say, imagine that's about half the power it's taking to run the light bulb in your refrigerator. Right. And we're seeing that half a fridge light from over, well, what is four times further away than Pluto. Wow. So that's already very tiny. But by the time that tiny signal travels across that 20 billion kilometres of space, the signal spreads out. Yep. Inverse square law. It's spreading out, becoming thinner and more diffuse. So that 19 watts is now spread over an area that's actually larger than the Earth's orbit around the sun. Yep. So the dish here in Canberra picks up only a tiny fraction of that, yes. equivalent to about one twenty billionth the amount of power that would, say, be generated by a watch battery. Wow. So it's literally a whisper that we are receiving from the great depths of space. So all credit to the designers and the physicists and the engineers that have built that facility. The engineering behind it is absolutely incredible. The precision of what we need to do is just amazing. The the 70-metre dish, which on its curvature is about 109 metres, is less than 0.26 of a millimetre variation across the surface. Wow. About a thickness of, say, two sheets of paper. Yep. And that creates a 
very accurate parabolic surface to gather maximum signal reflecting it very accurately to the secondary dish, the subreflector, and gathering that signal to put it down through the receiving cones at the heart of the dish. We have to process that. We have to eliminate all the random noise generated by the universe, the sort of junk mail space, yep. uh, cleaning up the signal, and then taking the data from the carrier signal and getting that off to the mission science teams. Well, that was my next question, Glenn. You're tracking a great number of spacecraft, and so you're receiving a lot of data. How do you manage all that data and get it out to your partners again? So the way we relay the data out, we have multiple fibre optic lines, multi-gigabit lines heading out of the site. But before it heads out, we actually do that initial step of processing. So about two-thirds of our main operations building is just full of computer processing systems, putting through all the data in real time. We record it all on site, and that's to ensure that there is a backup to the data that we re- we're sending off via those optic cables and so that we can ensure that the scientist gets every single bit of that information. Once they've confirmed, the mission has confirmed that they have every bit that they were expecting of data, then we can actually clear that recorded information right. and, and record over the top of that. So we only generally keep the data for a, maybe about a week at a time, depending on the you know confirmations from the mission teams themselves. We're putting through huge volumes of data every day, every week. We've been doing that for, well, 53 years just at our tracking station. Yep. And, you know, I, I kind of like to think that virtually everything any of us have ever seen heard learn about space taken by you know robotic missions or even the you know the human missions to the moon were all received through our station and our sister stations in spain and california providing that 24-hour coverage of space okay so it sounds like there's an amazing range of teams that are working at your facility there can you tell us a bit about some of the technical and scientific teams who work at the cdscc yes It's kind of a popular idea that, you know, a station like ours must have a lot of scientists, but actually we really don't have any at all. We do have a radio astronomer because we like to use spare time on the antennas to do some radio astronomy work. So that person is there <laughs> to uh, to do those sorts of observations. But our people are primarily engineers and technicians. Yep. So we have people who have expertise in, in mechanical and structural engineering, in electronics, cryogenics, hydraulics uh, systems, transmitters, receivers. We have computer programmers, computer analysts, and, of course, radio communication experts. But for a lot of the work, that we do you can't go off and do a course in deep space communications or you know working on 70 meter antennas so what we find are people who have, have expertise and good uh, you know aptitude attitude in their particular fields we bring them in and then train them up to the standards required by the deep space network and that's why we retain a lot of people that they get such good expertise that i mean they could go off and get a job pretty much anywhere but they tend to stay with us because they build up unique skills. They're doing a unique job. I think they realise that the, just the enjoyment we get from the, the work of doing there, we're literally making history every day. But the fact that their skills are just so unique, you know, we want to retain them. And many people who have worked at the tracking station in these areas of you know, engineering and the, the tech side of things uh, have worked for our station for you know, 20, 25 years, 30 years and more in some cases. Sounds like a wonderful and exciting workplace, Glenn. Oh, it is. I mean, everybody who works there is very proud of what we do. It is literally, it sounds like a cliche, but it's in our DNA. 
to ensure that we get every bit of data, every bit of information, because we know just how much effort the mission teams put into their spacecraft, into their projects. Yep. They might be their entire career, and we do not want to let them down. So, <laughs> you know, if something breaks at three o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day and we're about to land on Mars, you know, people are going to be racing out there to ensure that thing is fixed and so that we do not lose that vital information, that vital contact. Yes. And believe me, we've done that with spacecraft landing on Christmas yep. Day. Because um, a lot of careers are, are built on such projects. That it's not a project that lasts a week. A lot of them last a lifetime. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you take a mission like New Horizons, that was a nine-and-a-half-year voyage, actually, to get all the way to Pluto. But the mission actually started more than 15 years before it even left Earth. Yep. When the first concepts were actually proposed and just the idea of how we're going to get the money to actually do this, put in the proposals to NASA. The mission's not back. Put it in another proposal. You know, change it about. So a lot of effort goes into them. A lot of things happen behind the scenes. Then you've got to design, build, test the spacecraft and send it on its way. So, yeah, it is enormous effort. And, you know, we're very proud that we can play a role to ensure that it all goes well, that they can talk to their spacecraft, they can get all the data back, and we can make a lot of scientists around the world very, very happy. And it looks like the CSIRO understand the environment that they exist in, in that they've employed you as a science communicator. Now, I saw you on TV last week, Glenn, and could you describe a typical week for a science communicator working for the CSIRO? <laughs> Well, yeah, probably nothing that you could say is a typical week. So many things to happen all the time. But take the last week for me. There is a lot of work to do just communicating with the public. Uh, we have a, a wonderful visitor centre at the tracking station. We see about 70,000 visitors a year, a lot during the school holidays and on weekends. So just talking to them, talking to kids, talking to families, talking to tour groups, groups of seniors, all sorts of visitors, not only from around Australia, but right around the world actually visiting us and letting them know a little bit more about what's going on out there in space and the important role that we play. So we do a lot of that. Then, of course, you're just dealing with things like media. We get media calls all the time. They just have, they might have an inquiry. Oh, we've heard about this. Can you explain this so that I know who to talk to or where to go or what right questions to ask? So we get a lot of that sort of stuff. Then there's things like we've got a key mission moment so yep. just recently of course rosetta's landing on the surface of the comet doing media interviews so you know we were doing various radio interviews tv and also for online publications and newspapers so you get a lot of those inquiries you have to put yourself in front of a camera you know in my role i get to be a you know a key spokesperson for the tracking station and it's really a fun thing to do it's nerve-wracking too you know sometimes i prefer to be behind the camera but sometimes you have to be on it and and sure that you can tell people in a clear and hopefully concise way enough passion and enthusiasm to convey the excitement of what's actually going on, but ensuring that you don't dumb it down. I think a lot of people don't give enough credit to the non-space interested people out there that they're not going to understand some of these complex things. But I like to think that, yeah, they can actually understand these things. So, you know, my philosophy is never talk down to those people about that sort of stuff. And then, of of course, there's all the other things that go along with a typical job. There's a lot of administrative work, there's a lot of paperwork. And in my role, I'm not only doing our education and outreach work, and I, I work with a, another great person doing that, Dr. Corinne McDonnell. Yep. 
there's also the work that I do just in administration. I'm the administration lead for our support services group on the site, so handling all the paperwork and supporting finances and logistics and all sorts of other things in that area, just yep. things that help to make place go. And another role that I'm now doing, which is the NASA Operations Support Officer. Yep. So my role there is supporting our director and some of our management team to ensure that we can continue to do all the work that we do with the different space agencies. Not only the work we do through the tracking station, but in other projects that we support, like scientific ballooning operations in Alice Springs, yep. and also the support of the NASA TDRS facility, which supports communications for the International Space Station. So that keeps me busy enough, and the education and outreach work is you know, a very big chunk of what I have to do on a daily basis. And it sounds like the variety is fantastic. Oh, it is. And we've got some great... We also have to do a lot of events management as well. We get lots of visiting mission scientists and VIPs wanting to tour the station, to come to talk to our staff or to do public presentations. So we get to manage all of those sorts of activities as well. And just in a short time in November, we're going to be having a very big event, and that is the official opening for our new 34-metre beam waveguide antenna, Deep Space Station 36. So we have a whole range of people coming from NASA headquarters and the Jet Propulsion Labs and people from the US Embassy and CSRO and other stakeholders and regulators throughout Australia who will actually be coming to the station. So we have a, a very large event that I'll be managing there. And then less than two weeks later, also hosting some of the key people who head the Cassini mission who are also coming to visit us. People can always follow along with the the work that we're doing. We have a great social media account on Twitter at Canberra DSN that people can follow along. We post uh, regular pictures and reports on what we do. So people can come along on the journey that we're doing every day. Yep. And that's how I found you in the first place. So to finish up, what's your personal rant, rave or obsession with science or astrophysics? I think in some ways the, the rant I have is that not enough people actually know about us. Yep. The Deep Space Network, the people that work there, are really the unsung heroes of space exploration. You don't hear much about us. And that's because, I mean, you see the, the pretty pictures from Mars and you see the happy scientists at the other end. And you forget about the connection that goes on in between. And that is the Deep Space Network. Without us, nobody goes anywhere, does anything, gets their data there and back. You'd probably only hear about the Deep Space Network if we messed up. Yep. And, of course, as I said, you know, we try to ensure that we never mess up, that we never lose that data. We regularly return sort of 99.88% of the data that we're required to do. We're only actually required by NASA to get 95% of that so that's kind of you know in a way it's yeah it'd be great for more people to to know about us and sort of acknowledge the wonderful work done by a great team of employees working at our station every day about 88 people work for the site currently the other side of my rant is that i think we're not doing enough in science yep. overall you know as a science communicator we're getting the message out there about all the great work done all the time all the great discoveries and people do appreciate that but probably only for a pretty short period of time yep the news cycle the way we gather information now we're, we're on the internet we're on social media we're listening to the radio we're watching the television we've got all this information bombarding and you know you hear about something great and then two minutes later you've forgotten about it you moved on to the next thing and it'd be great for more people to to listen to the science and take it a bit further to learn a little bit more about it to go yeah that was interesting i need to go and find out some more about this the more they understand about it, it gets demystified for them the more that they'll trust in the science 
science, the yes. more they'll support the yep. science. And in that support of science, that will also get our leaders to go, hey, this is something that the public really is interested in, really support, and are also passionate about. Therefore, I will give more support to it. And I think that's critical for all of us, not just you know, us at the Deep Space Tracking Station, but in all areas of science, whether it's space science or medical science or earth sciences, all sorts of fields. Thank you very much, Glenn Nagel, for speaking with us today. That's great, Brendan. Really appreciate it. And thank you very much to you and Astrophys. Very good. That was Glenn Nagel from the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very good, Ian. Your son had some problems with asthma. Yes, he did. He managed to get a, a cold and then go downhill very, very rapidly. Text from Peter saying, uh, and you don't need to fly back. He's in the hospital with an asthma attack. And he, uh, it occurs often enough that we uh, go, yeah, that's what happens with Andy. But uh, it's still uh, it's still not good when it happens. Oh, it's very scary. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, Ian. Now, tell us, what's up in the sky this week? What's coming up is very interesting. So, uh, again, looking ahead to the sky, the start of this week, you'll see Venus in the head of the Scorpion. Now, again, if you look to the west of the sky, you'll see what looks to be a question mark made of stars. Now, that's the constellation of Scorpius, the Scorpion. Yep. And in the in, in the head of uh, the Scorpion, you'll see a, the a bright white Venus. It's, it's the brightest thing in the sky, apart from the Moon and, and the Sun. And right next to bright Venus, you'll see a dimmer but still bright star. That's the sugar forming the head of the Scorpion. It's although its name actually means claw, and they're very close together. And over the coming days, Venus will move away from the children, move towards Antares and Saturn. So just above Venus, you'll see two bright objects. Uh, almost above Venus is a, a bright red star, Antares. And off to the right of Antares is the yellowish uh, object, which is uh, the ring world Saturn. And by the end of the week, on the 28th, Venus will be right smack in the middle of Antares and Saturn, and that will be a very good way to finish off the week and almost the month. Very good. And I was just going to mention, we've got a full moon at the moment, and so what that means is that there, probably no coincidence, there's a very strong coronal mass ejection heading our way, and so the aurora hunters will all be out there. In, in the grip of a very strong coronal mass ejection and counter-rotating coronal hole for the past few days, for those who have had the gaps in the cloud, we've been able to see some faint aurora in between the gaps in the cloud and the strong moonlight in the next few days as the moon rises later we might be able to see some more auroral phenomena as the sky is darker uh, we actually had some incredibly intense auroral indicators i did see somewhere that someone's putting up some permanent aurora cameras that will be online 24 7 there's a wonderful southern hemisphere google map that shows where all the best viewing sites are to view auroras from anywhere on the planet, northern and southern hemisphere. And that can be found at tinyearl.com forward slash view spots, all lowercase, all one word. A couple of weeks back, there was a series of auroral sightings where all the indicators were 
absolutely rubbish. They were complete nonsense. Yep. But people were seeing Aurora and what was happening. There was just sort of little flips where for about an hour or so, there would be a bit of a breakthrough and people were seeing quite good Aurora and then they'd flip away. It was very short bursts of activity. And all the indicators, because they were, they were gross indicators being averaged over periods of hours, you wouldn't show up. But you were getting these little flickers of activity where people who were out on the street were being able to see things. And so you've got to take that into account. So there's a lot of times where there's overall the activity is pretty, it looks pretty rubbish. But if you're out on the street and it's really dark, you may be out there and, and you, there's these little flickers of activity that you'll pick up. Wherever you are, keep your eyes open and look up. And we know that the sun goes through an 11 year sunspot cycle. And normally you would expect the most auroras to happen at the peak of that. Now we're yeah. just moving away from a peak into the quiet zone, but the message is, I think, that you don't give up hope because these coronal mass ejections can happen at any time. Well, you've not only got coronal mass ejections, but you've also got the coronal holes. Now, the incidence of these will both fall off as we head towards the quiet time. But even on the shoulders, you'll still get some. So we've got probably about another year or so of reasonable activity as the thing dies down. Coronal mass ejections may give us the most spectacular chances for aurora. But the coronal holes, they're the most likely to give you these sort of little flickering on and off again type of aurora and should not be discounted as uh, sources, of, uh, sources of aurora. But the coronal holes are also important sources of high-speed activity which can result in aurora. So we keep our eyes out for both of them. Very good, Ian. Now, do you have a tangent for us this week? Well, the tangent, I have two, uh, two tangents. They're both related. One of the tangents actually follows on from a tangent I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is that we're going to have a blue new moon. Sigma just discovered the fact that every so often we have two of a kind of a moon in a row, and you don't get very much love for anything other than full moon. Yeah, super moon. What we're talking about is, in fact, perigee moons. This is uh, full moons that occur close to perigee, when the moon is closest to the Earth in its orbit. Now, like plants orbiting the sun, when the moon is orbiting the Earth, its orbit is elliptical. And sometimes, and of course, so that, so that in its orbit, Earth, when the moon's closest to the Earth in its orbit, it's a perigee. And when the moon's first from its orbit in Earth, it's called apogee. Yep. Because of the nature of the orbit, sometimes when it is at uh, perigee, it's full moon, and sometimes when it's at apogee, it's full moon. Yep. So um, somewhere around about 10 years ago, uh, plus or minus a couple of years, and astrologers started to call um, full moons that occurred at uh, perigee super moons. Yep. Uh, and, and, and it got really annoying. But generally, everyone ignored him. And then one, one day, someone at NASA thought this would be a good way to get people interested in Astronomy. So they picked up on the term supermoon, much to the annoyance of the amateur community. And from then, it's it's ongoing. Uh, and the problem the problem with this is, okay, it, it can be a teaching moment when you talk about how the the moon's going to be uh, uh, a little bit closer to Earth, and so it's going to be seven percent bigger and about thirty percent brighter. And you go, oh wow! And then try and point out that actually, unless you've got really good eyesight and a good memory. There's no way you're going to be able to tell the difference between the, the, a supermoon and any other moon. Exactly. Um, 
Now, you had another tangent for us? Well, this this brought up the same thing about the blue moon. So we're going to have a blue new moon. So uh, we we don't uh, give too much love to... Uh, we give lots of love to full moons. We've given lots of love to perigee and apogee full moons. But the same phenomenon happens with new moons. Yep. First quarter moons and last quarter moons. Oh, we've got a perigee full moon. Yeah, yeah. And you get a perigee new moon, but no one cares about perigee new moon. Oh, like, you can't actually see them. <laughs> but, you also get, but you also get perigee last quarter moons and first quarter moons, and apogee first quarter moons and last quarter moons. You can do exactly the same thing. Yep. So we're like, oh, it's a full moon. Yeah. So what? But imagine doing the same thing with because with the full moon, of course, everything's washed out. So you can get these beautiful, this nice picture of a very big full moon and a very small full moon, yeah. But imagine doing the same thing with a first quarter or a last quarter moon. Yep. And you're getting and you're getting the terminator with all the craters bigger. Okay, so it's only seven percent bigger, but it just it's still it's it'd be a lovely little project to do a perigee versus an apogee last quarter moon. Yep. What do you think about that? That sounds great. Yeah. So let's make that a project, eh? All you astrophotographers out there, oh, I'm just going to wave to you. Hello, astrophotographers out there. All you astrophotographers out there, let's have a perigee and uh, apogee first quarter, last quarter uh, astrophotography contest to see uh, what more detail we can get out of our first quarter, last quarter moons when they're at perigee. Okay? That sounds like a fantastic challenge, and I hope there'll be some people take it up. Well, I think that's it for this week, Ian. Um, I hope your son continues to improve. I'm sure he will. He's had enough cartoons to uh, keep him happy, and I bought, uh, bought uh, some cartoon books back then from uh, Perth, so I'll actually keep him going. Okay. Thank you very much, Ian, astroblogger Musgrove. Thank you very much, Brendan, and may the rain be not horizontal for you, but may there be gaps so you can see the moon through. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ian. Excellent. Breaking news for Thursday, 20th of October, is that the ESA's ExoMars mission continues. The Trace Gas Orbiter and the Schiaparelli Lander did a successful burn into orbit. The Schiaparelli Lander separated and headed towards the Mars surface. We had a LOS loss of signal, and that's not good news, but the Trace Gas Orbiter is successfully doing science in orbit orbit around Mars, and we will do a full report on that mission next week. Next huge news, there are at least 10 times more galaxies than we thought. This is from a paper published in rxiv.org, and it will soon be published in the Astrophysical Journal. It's from researchers at the University of Nottingham, School of Physics and Astronomy in Nottingham. From the introduction of their paper, when discovering the universe and its properties, we are always interested in knowing absolutes. For example, it is of astronomical interest to calculate how many stars are in our galaxy, how many planets are surrounding these stars, and the total mass of the universe. One important metric that has been only answered in a rough way is the total number of galaxies in the universe. Now, their techniques and data analysis is light years beyond my understanding of maths, but we do know this particular paper will be poured over by tens of 
thousands of astrophysicists and cosmologists in the coming years because it has such huge implications, including the rewriting of the Drake equations. What they've done is very clever. They've calculated how many galaxies we would be able to see if our instruments were good enough. They found that all galaxies tend to cluster together as a function of time, forming larger and larger clusters, thus reducing the total number of galaxies present. By mathematically running the clustering rate backwards from what we can currently see, the researchers concluded that around 90% of the galaxies out there are too faint and too far away to view with current technologies. From their conclusion, the number of galaxies in the observable universe is 2 times 10 to the 12 galaxies. This is roughly a factor of 10 more than previous estimates. And this also implies that we have yet to detect a large population of faint distant galaxies. Now, if we put this in layman's terms, it's either good news or bad news. Good, if you consider you have 10 times more money in the bank than you thought. Bad, if you have to wait 10 times longer for your next holiday. And more exciting news, this coming via china.org.ch. The Shenzhou 11 spacecraft docks with Tiangong-2 Space Lab. The Shenzhou 11 manned spacecraft successfully completed its automated docking with the orbiting Tiangong-2 Space Lab at 3.30 yesterday, Wednesday, Beijing time, according to the Beijing Aerospace Control Center. Shenzhou 11, which was launched Monday morning from northwest China's Gobai Desert, began to approach Tiangong-2 automatically on Wednesday and made contact with the space lab a short time later. The rendezvous took place in the orbit about 393 kilometers above Earth. The two astronauts aboard Shenzhou 11, Jing Haiping and Shen Dong, monitored and reported on the docking operation, relaying their findings to the control center. According to the mission schedule, once they enter the space module, the astronauts will stay there for 30 days. Shenzhou 11, China's sixth manned spacecraft, will undertake the longest ever space mission in the country. The two astronauts will spend a total of 33 days in space. Sun Jun, Deputy Chief Engineer of BACC, told Jinzhu that the precision needed for the orbit prediction and automatic docking calculation was much higher than previous docking missions. China is the third country after the US and Russia to complete successfully base rendezvous and docking procedures. The Tiangong-2 space station was sent into space on September 15. It is hailed as China's first space lab in the strict sense and a key step to building a permanent space station. Congratulations to the Chinese Space Agency and their two taikonauts. Just a side note, in the United States, astronaut is derived from the Greek words astron, star, and nautus, sailor, while in Russia, a space traveller goes by the name cosmonaut, which is derived from the Greek words cosmos, meaning universe, and nautus, meaning sailor. Westerners call a space traveller from China a taikonaut, based on the 1998 writings of Chiu Li Yik and Qian Lan, where the term Taikon is used, and Taikon in Chinese means the great emptiness, Chinese for space. Finally, we have a science release from the ESO, the Milky Way's ancient heart. Vista finds remains of archaic globular star cluster. Ancient stars of a type known as R.R. Lyrae have been discovered in the centre of the Milky Way for the first time using ESO's Infrared Vista Telescope. 
Aralyrae stars typically reside in ancient stellar populations over 10 billion years old. Their discovery suggests that the bulging centre of the Milky Way likely grew through the merging of primordial star clusters. These stars may even be the remains of the most massive and oldest surviving star clusters of the entire Milky Way. RR Lyrae stars are variable stars and the brightness of each RR Lyrae star fluctuates regularly. By observing the length of each cycle of brightening and dimming in a RR Lyrae star and also measuring the star's brightness, astronomers can calculate its distance. So it's another way of setting up a standard candle like the Cepheids. Unfortunately, these excellent distance-indicated stars are frequently outshone by younger, brighter stars, and in some regions they are hidden by dust. Therefore, locating RR Lyrae stars right in the extremely crowded heart of the Milky Way was not possible until this survey was carried out using infrared light. The technology used for this research is at Paranel in Chile, 2.5 kilometres in altitude, in a dry and arid region, leaving most moisture and dust particles far below its field of view. Vista has a main mirror that is 4.1 metres across, and in photographic terms, it can be thought of as a 67 megapixel digital camera with a 13,000 millimetre lens. At the heart of a telescope, is a huge three-ton camera with 16 state-of-the-art infrared-sensitive detectives. Their hard work was rewarded, however, with the identification of a dozen RR Lyrae stars. Their discovery indicates that remnants of ancient globular clusters are scattered within the centre of the Milky Way's bulge. So this is another example of our understanding of galactic formation being revised on the run. That's it for this week. See you next week. Radio Wave!